Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. From the revelation to St. John, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Despite all you may have heard growing up as a child, or maybe even as a young adult in church, the revelation to St. John is not a scary story. It is at the heart a letter of encouragement, an apocalypse, a revelation of the hidden kingdom of Jesus Christ being made manifest. In our earthly struggle, the church militant must be continually reminded that this struggle is first and foremost profoundly spiritual, hidden from sight, a battle between heavenly hosts of angels and the very demons of hell. It is a common temptation to be preoccupied with the things of this world over and above the things of heaven. Cultural influence, political power, and if you're not so terribly worldly, just maybe something like this. Having a slightly cleaner house, or a more attentive and loving spouse, or a spouse at all, or better grades, or more money in your checking account, wouldn't these be heaven coming to earth, these lusts for earthly comfort, for power, for even simple respectability, the admiration of our neighbors are often put to deceptive ends. They become justified as even the outworking of Christ's kingdom, which just so happens to coincide with our own wants and desires. And thanks be to God for that. You and I face the temptation to recast the biblical vision of Christ's kingdom into our own political agendas, never quite mindful that the Lord's kingdom is not of this world. We become servants who fight, thus making ourselves conspirators for a kingdom that is of this world and not for the true kingdom which is outside of it. To be clear, Christians have a responsibility to, when working for the upbuilding of society, to do so in accord with biblical principles as well as with natural reason. And if that makes me a culture warrior, then so be it. But what I desire to counter this morning is the idea that we Christians do well to abandon ourselves to the projects of liberal democracies while forgetting that we are, in truth, subjects of a monarch. We like to believe that we have power, the power to persuade, the power to vote in a better society, the power to bring justice. The trouble is that we are so used to this way of thinking that laws are supposed to serve our equal standing as citizens, that laws are supposed to preserve our rights, that good governments are limited governments, that we fail to even imagine what it means to live as citizens of Christ's kingdom. The difference, if I might put it simply, is that in a kingdom, the laws and the subjects alike serve the ends of the monarch and those alone. What I would suggest is that we would do well to look at the ancient church, 
a church without political power, a church without status in this world, the very church to which the Revelation to St. John is written. Find out something about them. Find out what Jesus Christ being king really means. John writes to the seven churches to encourage them, but also to rebuke them. There is a good mix of encouragement and rebuking. But I want to recount briefly what these churches were like. To the church in Ephesus, John writes to a church that has abandoned love for Christ and his teachings. They are known for their good deeds. They are known for their hard work. They are known for their perseverance. They're standing firm in the face of false apostles, but they have abandoned their first love. How can we not feel this so keenly? Brothers and sisters, I am often more self-satisfied by my industriousness for the gospel, for my standing firm in the faith, for my orthodoxy, for my holding to right opinions than I am a man who loves the Lord Jesus and who rejoices in that love. I stand condemned for that. But more broadly, there's an indictment here. An indictment of a church that is zealous for hard work, zealous for the truth, but not zealous for God. Not a church that loves the truth as met face to face in Jesus. To the church at Smyrna, John writes to a church that has faced many trials, that is quite poor, that is slandered by others. To a persecuted church, to a poor church. Note that John does not proclaim a gospel of liberation, kind of gospel of, well, we're going to raise up a kingdom army to liberate you from your oppressors. By the way, I don't even think those ideas existed yet. But of life, even as they are martyred, even as they lay down their lives in witness to the gospel, of not being hurt by the second death because of their faithfulness unto death. To the church at Pergamum, John writes of their faithfulness to the holy name of God, their refusal to deny the faith, but there are two things which the Lord holds against them. Some hold to the teaching of Balaam and some to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, whose works the Lord has mentioned earlier he hates. Those who hold to the teaching of Balaam, and if you... uh, you know, want more info on Balaam, you can turn to Numbers 20. Uh, I know that because I was once in junior high. Those who hold to the teaching of Balaam are those who put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, eating meat offered to idols and practicing pornea, sexual immorality. They are a scandal to the people of Israel, a scandal to the Jews. The Nicolaitans are most likely also a a sexually licentious sect. What do we see from this? That it is possible for a church to be steadfast in the faith while some in their midst practice all manner of scandal and sexual immorality. Well, look, we know that this is true. Let's not cover up the truth. There are some of us who are addicted to pornography, some of us who are addicted to lust, while simultaneously holding fast to the faith in virtually every other way. But this must not be. There is help for you, believe me. Talk with me about it, please. We can get you help. But there are also those in the church who are calling for a total license in the sexual arena, calling for what the scriptures call parnea, good, 
and it is not good. Homosexuality, adultery, self-gratification, pornography, etc., 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 cannot by any stretch of the imagination, cannot be called good by a Christian. It is a scandal, and everyone, and I mean everyone, has repenting to do on that count. To the church at Thyatira, they have works, they have faith, they have a thriving ministry, but they tolerate that woman Jezebel. And we don't know who Jezebel is, except that she calls herself a prophetess. And it appears that she's also teaching the servants of God to practice sexual immorality, the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Friends, I don't have to tell you that we live in a time in which the church is assaulted by all manner of false prophets and prophetesses again, who call for the overturning of biblical truth, who call for a new sexual license for the church. This is not new. It has a long history. What is the temptation here? but to put the gratification of earthly lusts, of earthly desires, above faithfulness and obedience to Jesus, to put our own gratification above the dictates of the kingdom. To Sardis, the Lord speaks of a church that has the reputation of being alive, which is actually dead, a church that must wake up. I know of these churches, you know, they usually uh, put out, we're looking for a new pastor, oh, and we're a vibrant church. By the way, that is a, that is a clear sign of a problem. Um, if you're ever, you know, and this is true of, of anyone applying to any job whatsoever, if they call themselves vibrant, that's a, that's a dead giveaway that they're dead. <laughs> that's true of university positions as well. But do we not know of these friends? Churches that are known for being lively, that are known for being awesome, that are known for having wonderful worship, but are actually just asleep at the wheel. Churches falling into all manner of defilement. The Lord speaks of these as those who have soiled their garments. I might just put it as those who have pooped themselves. These likewise are called to repentance to conquer by the Holy Spirit. To the church at Philadelphia, the Lord notes that they have little earthly power, but they have remained faithful. Their patient endurance, their keeping of the word is a sign of the Lord's faithfulness to them, and they will be kept from the hour of trial. There is no rebuke to the church in Philadelphia, by the way, which is quite interesting. And lastly, we have that famous church of Laodicea, a church that is neither cold nor hot, that is lukewarm, to which the Lord says, I will spit you out of my mouth. They are rich, they have prospered, they need nothing, but they do not realize that they are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The reason that I recall all of these churches is to recall your mind to know that the church is a mess as much now as it was then. All of these churches, the good and the bad, receive the word in the first chapter, which we read this morning. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and ruler of kings on earth. 
to the lukewarm, to the licentious, to those who have wandered into heresy, to those who are dead, to those engulfed in sexual immorality, to those who have been tested and stood strong, to the persecuted, to the poor, to the rich, and to those who have worked hard for nothing, and to those who have fallen asleep, the central message is the same. Jesus Christ is king, and he must be obeyed. And Jesus the King loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. The message is of the Savior and King who is also the judge of all the tribes and nations of the earth, the first and the last. The kingship of Jesus is established and founded upon the very fact of his two natures. His kingship is divine, it is everlasting, and the very power of God. At the same time, he is a king among, for, and one of all humanity, a son of David and the son of God. This day, called on the calendar the Feast of Christ the King, was instituted in the years following the First World War. Get this. Secularism and nationalism were on the rise Secularism and nationalism were on the rise a hundred years ago. One can only wonder where they are now. And the Bishop of Rome, Pius XI, wrote the following to establish this feast, which has since been adopted throughout the whole church. Jesus' kingship is founded upon the ineffable hypostatic union from this it follows not only that Christ is to be adored by angels and men, but that to him as man, angels and men are subject and must recognize his empire. By reason of the hypostatic union, Christ has power over all creatures. But a thought that must give us an even greater joy and consolation is this, that Christ is our king by acquired as well as by natural right, for he is our redeemer. Would that they who forget what they have cost their Savior might recall the words, you were not redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb unspotted and undefiled. We are no longer our own property, for Christ has purchased us with a great price. Our very bodies are the members of Christ. I want to pause here for a moment and consider what this means that Jesus Christ is our king by acquired as well as by natural right. We tend to focus on that natural right, the kingship to which the Magi journey to see, on the Lord's divinity, his status as the firstborn of creation, his status as king of the Jews. But the Holy Scriptures speak of this kingship also as something obtained, acquired, acquired by virtue of the great cost of the cross, Christ and him crucified. You and I must constantly remember that the cross is not an exercise in earthly power or splendor or the sort of right of one who was born a king or the stuff of things which do not endure but the spotless sacrifice of a holy life, the self-emptying love of the Savior. 
It is the very message of the cross that is, in fact, a verdict upon the powers of this world as well as the powers and principalities which we do not see. The verdict is this. Their rule in the long run is illegitimate. In the end, there will be no European Union. Brexit, Brexiteers rejoice. No Venezuelan dictator. No president of China. No prime ministers. And no president of the United States. Indeed, no United States at all. There is no weapon greater than the cross, no air, not aircraft carriers, not assault rifles, not nuclear weapons, because God and man in one person has taken an image of weakness and made it the central sign of an everlasting kingdom. Christ is both king and priest, offering his life as a ransom for many. Which brings me to the last point, when John speaks of what the Christian is in this world, he does not use the language of a team of bureaucrats, which I think is often the image that people have of the church, just a bunch of desk jockey types trying to take over the world, or of public service. I'm thinking here of social workers, or of political advocacy the DC Christian think tank. He doesn't write about any of that. He writes to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, comma, priests to his God and Father. We Christians are loved and freed by the sin, from sin by the blood of Jesus. This is our first, indeed our only, identity. There is no modifier that is sufficient to the word Christian. Our first identity is as those loved by God and freed from sin who know our first love. But John takes it further. We are a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father. Not every Christian is a priest in the ordained sense. And thanks be to God for that, right? I mean, I, I, think, I think if many of you were priests, you would hate it. Um, Father Jonathan and I like being priests, but that's not why we do it. Set apart through the laying on of hands, but every Christian is a priest in the sense in which John uses it. A holy people who stand between God and our neighbor as the church, as that what Simon Chan calls a divine humanity, to offer intercession before God, to love both God and our neighbor, to sacrifice for both God and our neighbor, to set aside self-rule and to take on a life of obedience and service to Jesus the King, who rules over all. May his kingdom last forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.